Hello, and welcome to this edition of Doc Talk. We're honored and excited today to be speaking with key researchers at Cook Children's Jane and John Justin Neurosciences Center. We're joined by Dr. Scott Perry, Medical Director of Neurosciences, Dr. Christos Papadelis, Director of Neurosciences Research, and Diana Grotto, Clinical Coordinator for Neurosciences Research. Made up of some of the brightest minds in the world, individually and together, this research team has won numerous awards and accolades for their many achievements in neurosciences research. As a result of their work, they've had a major impact on improved outcomes for children and young adults with neurological conditions, not only here in Texas, but nationally and internationally as well. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Dan. I know you all are very busy, so let's just dive right in. You've done a lot of great research here at Cook Children's. Over the last two years, Cook Children's Jane and John Justin Neurosciences Center has significantly expanded the Neurosciences Research Center, which includes extensive research into the causes, comorbidities, and treatments for children and adults with disorders of the nervous system. What was the motivation behind that, Dr. Perry? Uh, Jan, you know... Cook has had a long history of uh, clinical excellence, right? And we've been doing research for a long time, but a lot of people honestly don't know that. Um, we wanted to take research uh, a, a step further. So we, we had always embedded it within our, our clinical practice on a, on a daily scale. But in order to provide the best care for the patients we take care of, you have to take the next step of uh, innovate and bring new treatments and therapies and things of that nature. Given that our practice has always been primarily a clinical practice with you know physicians seeing patients every single day, research is kind of hard to squeeze into that. So, so we said, you know, how can we put together a neuroscience team that is dedicated to doing research every single day? And that's really where the idea for the Dotson Neuroscience Research Endowment came from. A generous gift from uh, Pitt Dotson provided us an endowment so that we would have uh, essentially grant money available to hire a full research team, which is where Dr. Papadelis came from as a neuroscience researcher to join us and create this team who is embedded into our clinical uh, practice every day, is always there with the docs in clinic, and and tries to uh, help us develop research that has near-term benefits to our patients. Like, we want to do research that is applicable to the care of the kids we are seeing right now, as well as the kids we might see later down in the future. So, you know, we're focused primarily right now on epilepsy uh, and movement disorders. Those are the two biggest areas that we built teams around. And uh, the future holds uh, several other sections of neurosciences that I think we'll talk about as, as we go through uh, the rest of our conversation uh, today. And then we focused on two types of research, which we'll talk about uh, throughout this conversation today. The first being more kind of industry-sponsored research, so things where we're um, working with industries like the pharmaceutical industry, et cetera, to develop treatments for uh, patients, and, and we focus specifically on a lot of rare diseases. But then also investigator-initiated research. So those are those are things that are, are born and bred at Cook Children's, ideas that we have that we want to develop to help uh, help our patients and to innovate in their care. So, Dr. Papadellas, let's talk about your team. You have pulled together some of the brightest minds in the research field to collaborate. Can you talk about the qualities of the people you have brought together and the expertise they bring to the department? Uh, yeah, thanks, John. Uh, indeed, within these two last years, uh, we managed to attract productive scientists from all over the world, uh, formulating a research team of uh, 16 people in total. 
Uh, we had Crystal Cooper, uh, a former assistant professor from UT Southwestern, who joined my team last year, bringing expertise on a neuroimaging technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or functional MRI, for studying the comorbidities of epilepsy, such as depression and anxiety. Um, Dr. George Alexandrakis, associate professor at the University of Texas at Arlington, also joined our research center, serving as our uh, liaison with UTA, and uh, bringing uh, tremendous expertise on optical and uh, neuromodulation techniques. Um, we also had Dr. Ian Long Song, a former uh, postdoctoral fellow from University of Virginia, who joined the team offering expertise on uh, kinesiology and the study of movement disorders such as cerebral palsy and dystonia. Um, both of them, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Song, received research grants within the last two years to support their studies from the uh, Jordan Elizabeth Harris Foundation and the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. Uh, the group has also several PhD students from Europe and Asia uh, who joined the team to work on epilepsy projects and managed to excel, actually, within a short period of time. Two of them, uh, Ludovica Corona and uh, Margarita Matarese, actually won the Young Investigator Award from the American Epilepsy Society last week, a prestigious award that indicates the quality of our research. Um, their studies actually were selected among the best from over 1,300 applications submitted in the annual conference of the society. So your team has been a leader at using advanced neuroimaging techniques in the evaluation of conditions such as epilepsy, movement disorders, and cerebral palsy, as, as Dr. Perry just mentioned. Can you tell us a little about your current projects? Uh, yes, of course. Like um, Our team has established a unique set of advanced uh, neuroimaging techniques which uh, help us better understand uh, the anatomy and the function of both uh, healthy and sick brain. Uh, my main focus is pediatric epilepsy, the most common neurological disorder in children. And with my research, I try to help uh, children with epilepsy who are unable to control their seizures with anti-seizure drugs and suffer from what's called uh, drug-resistant epilepsy. So approximately one out of three children with epilepsy suffer from this condition. And for these children, uh, the best available treatment is brain surgery. Uh, the challenging part of, of, of this uh, kind of surgery is that in, in many cases, we don't know exactly where uh, the seizures they start in the brain. So this means that we don't know which brain area we should resect during uh, surgery uh, in order the child to become seizure-free. Um, by using a unique combination of data from neuroimaging techniques such as uh, magnetoencephalography or MEG and high-density electroencephalography or high-density EG, uh, my team develops advanced uh, biomarkers which can help in the precise delineation of the area where the seizures they start. So this kind of research can help uh, children with drug-resistant epilepsy to become uh, seizure-free. Um, my team also works with uh, children who suffer from movement disorders and more specifically with cerebral palsy. Uh, cerebral palsy is the uh, most common motor disorder and one of the most uh, common neurological disorders in children. Uh, children with cerebral palsy are often uh, um, unable to walk and, or they have significant motor deficits and the underlying cause is a kind of a brain injury that took place either during, during birth or before birth uh, in utero. Um, so by using a combination of neuroimaging techniques, uh, my team tries to understand what we call brain plasticity, how the human brain in children with cerebral palsy has been adapted to this injury uh, in order to become uh, more functional and effective. 
Uh, Arus Center also recently uh, purchased a rehabilitation robotic device for treating children with cerebral palsy and trying to map functional and structural changes in their brain due to rehabilitation. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that not only do you have investigators on site, but you're also working with researchers all over the world on projects related to epilepsy and movement disorders. What is the impact of that for patients through this research? Um, my team has indeed active collaboration with uh, top-tier academic institutions around the globe. Uh, we have an active collaboration with Boston Children's Hospital and uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, both affiliated with Hartman Medical School, my previous institution, and uh, the New York University, uh, as well as academic and health institutes in Canada and Europe, such as the Hospital for Sick Children, uh, affiliated with the University of Toronto and the University of Campus Biomedical in Rome of Italy. Um, our collaborators and my team uh, believe that uh, our research will benefit children with neurological disorders, such as epilepsy and cerebral palsy, by providing access to unique data that can help their epilepsy surgery or access uh, to unique rehabilitation techniques, such as the robotic therapy for improving the motor deficits of their upper and lower extremities. Now, Dr. Papadelis and his team are not the only members of Cook Children's Neurosciences involved in investigator-initiated research, Dr. Perry. I understand we were the first pediatric epilepsy center in Texas invited to join the Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium, also known as PERC. What is that organization, and why does that matter? Yeah, Jan, uh, the Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium was, uh, was founded several years ago. Uh, to create an environment for collegial uh, research between institutions. And and the reason that's important, especially in the neurology world and epilepsy in particular, which this organization focuses on, is is that many of these conditions are quite rare. And so for any center to gain a lot of expertise in one um, disease process may be difficult and may take years and and years to, to do it by taking a team that is willing to work together. And I think that's something that we don't see enough of uh, in the world, frankly, and, and certainly in the United States, is, is institutions willing to, to share data together and work together to solve problems. And that's what PERC is, is all about. I'm, I'm honored to be a member of their uh, leadership steering committee. Um, as part of that organization, I founded uh, a few years ago something called the Epilepsy Surgery Database Project, that is a project that currently includes 24 pediatric U.S. Uh, epilepsy centers collecting uh, a number of data points on all children referred for epilepsy surgery. And that's just, that's just one example of the power of what we can do. You know, why is that important? It's epilepsy surgery may only occur a few times in some centers, may occur, you know, 70 or more times in other centers. And their experience, their expertise, and their processes of how they do it, how they select the patients that have surgery, the outcomes of those patients may be very different depending on where you are in the country. And by putting that all together, uh, we hope to be able to compare the effectiveness of, of the ways we we evaluate uh, children and, and we do pediatric epilepsy surgery so that we improve the outcomes. We standardize the way it's done uh, across the country. And here in only two years worth of existence, we've already enrolled well over 1,200 children into that database, which would have taken any one institution you know, a decade or more to have uh, to gather that. And so a lot of exciting things come out of organizations like that. Uh, and, and then each can then take that data and can ask their own questions and then you know, as a team across the country, we're trying to solve these problems. So it's very important to be a member of things like that. 
So the, the research team at Koch Children's was instrumental in initiating cannabidiol and finfluramine research to help treat pediatric patients with rare genetic epilepsies. Now these are considered approved treatments. Dr. Perry, can we dive a little more into clinical trials we are doing now as well as the process for participating in one of these trials? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, while investigator-initiated research is, is, is super important, we can't we can't underestimate the importance of industry-sponsored research uh, and the development of new drugs. Uh, and for us, uh, a lot of the focus, as I said earlier, is on um, rare rare disease and rare genetic epilepsy in particular because that's that's an area of my interest. Uh, Dravet syndrome and other channelopathies uh, such as such as that. Um, and oftentimes these these trials um, these are conditions that don't have approved therapies. You know, so people are doing whatever is the consensus best approach to treat them. Uh, but fortunately, there's been a lot more interest now in developing therapies for them. And by doing these projects, you open that door uh, to those therapies. Is this may be the only way to get it until it's FDA approved. So being able to offer that uh, is really important. You know, in the past, I'd always shied away from industry-sponsored research because most of the trials were drugs that had already been tested and approved in adults. They were available at the pharmacy to be used off-label. And, you know, doing the trial just really it didn't help as much. But now we have trials that are specifically designed for children with very rare conditions and offering those therapies uh, to them is, is just instrumental um, to, you know, great outcomes, which you can see with the outcomes of both of those trials you mentioned, the, the cannabidiol and the fenfluramine had really meaningful impact on um, people with Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Um, we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Uh, we are, you know, we, we, we try our best to offer as many, um, many studies for rare disorders as, as we can. Uh, we have some upcoming studies for SCN8A encephalopathy. It would be the first uh, uh, drug trial for this condition. Uh, we have multiple um, ongoing trials for Dravet syndrome, uh, some of the disease-modifying therapies using antisense oligonucleotide therapy and viral vector therapy which are really exciting treatments that are aimed at the genetic reason for this condition. So not just treating the symptom of seizures, but trying to correct the genetic abnormality. Uh, so that, that's exciting. Uh, a couple other drug compounds we're looking at for uh, Dravet syndrome and some other rare epilepsy. So I, I think it's an important thing. We try to stay engaged and try to uh, offer as many as we can uh, so that our patients have you know, lots of options uh, out there. Terrific. Um, so since the beginning of COVID-19, we've learned that not everyone is aware of the phases of drug development and the method of getting treatments through FDA approval to make them available to patients, for families or physicians listening that may not be as familiar with the phases. Can you walk us through the process? Where do these ideas come from and how does one go from discovery to availability? Well, yeah, great question. You know, most of these most of these compounds begin as, you know, drugs in basic science labs that you know show in, you know, basic science experiments that they may work um, towards uh, epilepsy, or maybe they work for that specific genetic condition uh, that that we're talking about. 
and and once there's some kind of signal there that you might have something that is is useful um, that that could benefit, then it's going to go through multiple stages of, of clinical trials. Uh, the first stage, what we call phase one, uh, is one that is is really just taking the compound and and mostly using it in healthy volunteers just to get a a feel for its its safety, toxicity, doses. You know, is it is it okay to use in a human? Basically, now that it's moved from an animal model. Um, a phase two trial. So phase two and three and four are things that most people are going to encounter more often. Uh, a phase two trial is one in which uh, a group that has the disorder uh, under interest uh, is being studied, but the purpose of the study is really to, to understand the safety of the drug. So these are going to be smaller trials. We want to make sure it's a safe drug to use in this particular disease process. But we're not going to have maybe enough people in the trial to really understand how effective is it yet. Um, the phase three trial is, is the one where you're going to assess not only how safe is it, but how effective is it for the problem at hand. Um, most of these are um, frequently double-blind placebo-controlled trials. So if we break that down, you know, what does that mean? So double-blind means that myself as the investigator and the, the caregiver or the patient do not know what treatment they're on. Uh, it's placebo-controlled, which means one, uh, some people are going to be on a placebo, meaning not an active substance, and some people are going to be on the drug under investigation. And the reason that's important is because that removes, by double-blinding it and using a placebo group, we remove the bias um, that people may have, right? You can imagine if you know you're in a research trial and you know you're getting a drug that is supposed to be effective for a condition, some of your symptoms may be better, and they might not be better because they're actually better, but they might be better because you feel like they ought to be better because you're in a trial specific, you know, to this condition. And so that really helps eliminate that so you can get a real feel for what is the medicine doing. Uh, same with side effects, right, because lots of side effects are common. Nausea, vomiting, dizziness, headache. I mean, that occurs all the time. So you have to have placebo-controlled, double-blinded studies to understand, is headache really more frequent in people getting this new treatment under investigation, or is it really the same amount that happens to people who aren't under the, you know, on that medicine. And then a phase four trial is after the drug is, is out, it's approved, it's that post kind of marketing information. And that's important too, because phase three trials are highly regulated protocols. We got lots of rules to follow. Uh, you were, you know, on top of doing everything exactly as it's supposed to do. And in reality, that's not real life. So, when you leave the trial and you go off to live real life and you've got all kinds of maybe different medicines you're using, different activities, whatever, we need to understand did what happened in the trial hold up in the real world as well and is it still safe and as uh, efficacious um, as we saw in the original trial. Performing clinical trials is a complicated endeavor, and it takes a team of experts in research to do it well. Dr. Perry, you amassed quite the team, making Cook Children's a primary site for many studies, particularly those focused on rare genetic epilepsies. You said many times before, the most important member of the team is the clinical research coordinator, often a nurse that serves as the quarterback for the study making sure the protocol is followed precisely and working closely with you to ensure the safety of all the patients participating. 
We're lucky to have Diana Grotto join us today. Diana serves as the clinical research coordinator for almost all of Dr. Perry's studies and has extensive experience in clinical trial research. So, Diana, how do you determine if someone is eligible for a clinical trial? So Dr. Perry is really great at identifying patients. Um, so whether they come from him or an outside referral, um, it usually starts with a conversation to determine basic eligibility. Do you have this diagnosis? Do you have enough seizures? Um, and once that is confirmed, then they will all come in and do a screening visit with me. Um, to start the screening visit, we always start with informed consent. Um, informed consent is super important. It goes over the trial from A to Z, what to expect, who we are, how long the trial is, how many patients are going to be on the trial, um, the known side effects, so what to expect at every single visit. Um, and one of the most important things that we let everyone know who does a clinical trial is that it's completely voluntary. So at any point in any time, if you want to stop the trial, then you have that right. Um, once that's signed, then we start working on eligibility criteria. Every study has inclusion and exclusion criteria that every patient must meet 100%. Um, and that is to ensure that we have good trial data and that we are keeping everybody safe. Um, and to determine that criteria, patients will typically undergo a, a bunch of assessments. So whether that be labs and EKG and echo, um, just a whole gamut of things to determine eligibility. And then for epilepsy, one of the main things is epilepsy history. Um, Dr. Perry will do a very thorough review of their current seizures and past seizures and diagnosis. And once that is completed, we send that off to an epilepsy consortium typically, and they will approve that. And then lastly, um, because all we do uh, for the most part is epilepsy studies, um, we will send patients home with a diary. And so they are to document every seizure they have, typically for about 28 days, um, to make sure that they are having enough seizures to qualify. Um, because to determine if a medicine is working, we need to know that they had enough seizures to start with and that we can see a decrease. And so once all that's done, they go home for 28 days, maybe longer. Um, if they meet all the criteria, then they come back and they start the trial. So for parents or patients out there that might be considering participation in clinical trial research, what might you tell them to expect? I would tell them that they will see us often and that the visits are quite long typically. Like I mentioned before, you see a, a whole bunch of disciplines. You come in, um, you will meet with me for every single visit. You'll meet with Dr. Perry for every single visit. Um, but we will send you to lab and we'll send you to EKG and we'll send you to every uh, discipline needed um, to follow the protocol that the sponsor has, um, has written. Um, we ask a lot of questions to make sure that you are safe and we're not putting you at risk while you're on this new medication. It's different than Dr. Perry writing you a prescription for a drug that's already FDA approved. Um, we have to make sure that we can document those side effects and that we're just being really thorough is the big thing. Um, and I think the important thing for patients and parents to know is that it is a huge commitment on their end um, because it is 
it's it's a lot, um, but it's very rewarding when you get a new medication that no one else can get, um, and it works for your child. It's no guarantee, but um, that's always our hope to to offer something that is going to make a change. So are there age restrictions or age limitations? Yeah, every protocol um, has age requirements. So, um, I mean, I'd say typically we we see pediatric patients, but we've also seen older patients, um, adults, um, because, you know, we offer the study and if they qualify, then we're going to see them. So if there is a physician with a patient that might qualify to participate in one of our clinical trials, how would the physician refer their patient or reach out to you for more information? I think if we have a physician or even a parent who's interested, um, a good thing to do is go to, go to our website, go to cookchildrens.org, go to the search box, search for research. So we will have a list of all available trials. It should be up to date. Um, and there should be a link to contact us. Um, you can always call Dr. Perry's office. They will get you in touch with me or the main phone number for Cook and ask for the research department or myself. And I think if you don't find what you need on Cook website, go to clinicaltrials.gov. They have a great search engine. Um, you can type in the diagnosis. They will tell you the, you know, the, what's going on in the study, who's doing it, and have contact information on there as well. Cook Children's has been participating in research for decades, and now that we have the Neuroscience Research Center, we are expanding the capabilities of collaborations with more institutions and other researchers worldwide, creating a hub for research. What do you think the future holds for neuroscience research, Cook Children's? Dr. Perry? Well, you know, Jan, we talked a lot uh, today about you know our own investigator research, and then, of course, we spent a lot of time talking about clinical trials and really focused on epilepsy, and that's logical because that's what Diana and I do every day. Uh, I think the, the first thing to know is that I, I think the, the clinical trial research um, will continue to grow well beyond that. And it's, it's already grown well beyond that. Um, we have uh, we have faculty that do uh, research in demyelinating disorders like multiple sclerosis, uh, m- uh, neuromuscular disorders uh, like uh, muscular dystrophies, uh, et cetera. Um, and so, and to add uh, to what we were saying earlier about how would you find out about trials, when you, when you go to the website and you look up the faculty members and their areas of neuroscience interest, oftentimes it includes uh, information about maybe what trials they are participating in and they have available. Uh, so those are always important uh, places to look. I think the, the future um, is, is super bright other, otherwise from Dr. Papadelis and his team. You know, I mean, look at what has occurred in basically two years worth of being here. Uh, a, a group of none became a group of 16 um, as got in the American Epilepsy Society meeting coming up, uh, 25 abstracts uh, from, you know, our institution and our partner uh, institutions, which is a huge jump over, you know, two or three just a couple years earlier. So if that happened in two years, I think you can expect a lot of growth from that. Uh, We do hope uh, to build out into the other regions of, of the neurosciences. Uh, one of the purposes of bringing in Dr. Cooper was her interest in uh, mental health. Uh, and so not just looking at the mental health comorbidities of epilepsy, but the mental health comorbidities of other uh, disorders of the nervous system, uh, building into uh, research into uh, autism and developmental pediatrics with our partners at the Child Study Center uh, at Cook Children's. Um, so there are um, there's really endless opportunities. Um, Cook... Uh, uh, Cook Children's Neuroscience uh, Center, the Justin Neurosciences Center, is a large uh, is a large group, right? With over thirty thousand outpatients seen each year, 
there's a great number of uh, children getting care for a number of conditions here, and we have a lot of opportunities to continue to improve on all of that condition, all of those conditions, uh, with with research, and that's what we intend to do. So it's it's really exciting, and the the Dotson Endowment has just been a great foundation to really get that started, and you know we plan to just continue to grow that, grow the team. Uh, and continue to uh, expand on the great work that's being done. Really is super, super exciting. Um, So if any of our listeners want more information about neuroscience research at Cook Children's or clinical trials available or what other resources are available, where can they go? Like I said, the website is going to be your best and easiest place to get linked up to lots of things. So that's www.cookchildrens.org backslash neurology. That'll take you to the main uh, site. And if you just look on the left of the page, there's a tab for research. Uh, you can click on that. You can find out all all about Dr. Papadelis's program, uh, as well as if you uh, look at the individual faculty members, uh, their their research is listed. Um, those are probably the greatest places to get the up-to-date uh, stuff from, from Cook Children's. I really want to thank you all for joining us today. I appreciate your valuable time and the groundbreaking work that you're doing. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about this program or any program at Cook Children's, please visit us at cookchildrens.org. Like what you heard? You can subscribe to cookchildrens.talk wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our Doc Talk newsletter on our health professionals website. <laughs>